0: Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by MUBI, the online streaming cinema for your free 30-day trial. Go to MUBI.com slash Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of The Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for the Filmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Michael Snidell Hello! Bill Graham. Hello. And a special guest to help us talk about the other side of the wind, it's Caden Gardner. Uh, hello. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Thank
1: you for having me on.
0: But of course... Caden, why don't you take this opportunity to introduce yourself and uh, tell the people at home a little bit about who you are and where you come from.
1: My name is Caden uh, Gardner. I am a freelance uh, film critic. I live in uh, Schenectady, New York, uh, in the upstate area. I do sometimes uh, hang out among uh, the New York City film Twitter crowd. Um, I've had uh, bylines on the uh, film stage, uh, IndieWire, and uh, into more in a couple of other places. Then most recently, uh, working on a project uh, with Willow uh, McClay, I uh, uh, co-writer and writing partner on an upcoming book on the history of uh, transgender cinema. Recently, was part of uh, New York Film Festival's Critics Academy, and uh, that basically helped give me access to a bunch of uh, fast press screenings, which did include a bunch of great movies, also helped helped me uh, get access to see a public screen of uh, this movie we're going to be talking about right now.
0: Yeah, I will will get into it, of course, but did anyone actually get a chance to see this in the theater, or aside from you, Caden, or did we all just have to watch it on Netflix?
2: I'm ashamed to say that I
0: slept through the screening last week, Hopefully not in the theater. Uh, No, no.
2: (laughs) Although that's that's another podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jesus Christ, Uh, Bill Graham, theater or Netflix? Netflix. All right, yeah, I had to watch it on Netflix as well. And of course, that movie is *The Other Side of the Wind*, the newest film from
2: (laughs) Orson (laughs) Welles. Is going to get weird here.
0: Yeah, the this is going to be an interesting podcast because we're going to have to go into a lot of film history and a lot of yes. questions <laughs> of authorship and stuff. Um, so before we dive in and get mired and all that, the usual. Find us on Twitter at Filmstage Show, Facebook, search for the Film Stage Show. Send us an email podcast at thefilmstage dot com, and of course find us on iTunes and give us a comment and rating. Go to Patreon dot com slash the Film Show to help support this podcast and uh, help us to put out more great content. For as little as $1 an episode, you get access to our super cool Slack channel preferential treatment during film raffles. And I don't know, just the satisfaction of helping us out, I guess. In addition, we are brought to you by Movie, the online streaming cinema. Every day their curators introduce a new film and you have 30 days to watch. So there's a constantly rotating selection of 30 films at your disposal. You can watch it on your phone. If you're a sociopath, you can watch it on your smart TV, (laughs) your laptop. And of course, every other smart connected thing that you have, they've got a bunch of stuff following their Chinese independent documentary series. We have blind mountain, which is a similarly political impassioned reckoning with human trafficking in modern China. Not an easy watch. But Li Yang's film is a necessary nuanced expression of dissent against the powers that be, guided by a remarkably humanist lens. That is in addition to some other great stuff that's coming on there, including a very interesting sounding film called Nine Fingers, which is described as a C. generis cocktail of gangster films, German expressionism, and nautical nuclear intrigue. It's febrile anarchism is utterly freeing. It certainly sounds like it. So if you would like a 30-day trial of movie to get a, get your eyeballs on those films, go to MUBI.com slash filmstage. And now we come to the main review. Other Side of the Wind. How best to describe? Um, this is a film... That is about a film. It, uh, it, it stars John Huston as a director who is struggling to complete a very difficult film. And the movie incorporates both that film itself and, I guess, found footage style stuff regarding his 70th birthday party. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's dense. There's going to be a lot to talk about. This film, in addition to John Huston... Also stars Peter Bogdanovich and O.Ha. Coder, and it was it was shot in the seventies. Worked on for like a decade. Orson Welles passed away, and here we are, thirty three years later, and it's come out thanks to the work of diligent technicians and Netflix and
2: yeah but donovich it seems like is a big big part of that as well mm-hmm. as well as uh frank marshall
0: yeah so we're here to talk about it um before we do that of course uh here is the trailer
1: J. Cannaford, the Ernest Hemingway of the cinema. Mr. I just want to know what he represents. The man is infested
2: with disciples. I'm the apostle. Just like me and
1: God. How could you tell us apart?
3: Margaret's new movie?
2: The Other
1: Side of the Wind.
3: What's that about the movie? We
1: don't talk about the movie.
3: So, you guys are trying to get with it. Is that what this movie's about?
0: All right. So, as you can probably guess from the trailer, this is a dense film. And um, I just can't imagine that we're going to have time to talk about everything that we need to in order to talk about it. But we're going to give it our damnedest. So, first, let's start off with our nutshell reactions to this film. Caden, as our guest, why don't you kick us off with your brief overall thoughts on the other side of the wind.
1: So, um, I did see this at uh, Alice Tully Hall on a 35 millimeter print. Unfortunately, of course, uh, Alice Tully's acoustics are not always the best. Still, I felt like I was just on cloud nine, sort of watching it, uh, sort of, and watching a print of it. Again, I was again, struck by sort of the density and sort of referential metafiction uh, that was happening, that uh, Orson Orson Welles was both working out, perhaps on himself, perhaps settling some scores with people who are representing or represented by uh, certain characters, where I don't think it's too hard to identify who's who in that case. I was really struck uh, by how Extraordinary uh, Gary Graber's uh, cinema, cinematography was. He basically is uh, sort of a journeyman cinematographer who uh, just called L. Uh, Worson Wells up. His contributions to both the found footage and uh, the film within the film are just so contrasting. It's really uh, sort of an achievement to sort of see that all on screen. And uh, I was also, of course, struck by the film within the film. And I also think it is kind of obvious what's being lampooned a bit in that film within a film. And also, of course, uh, uh, Orson's uh, fixation on his own uh, real-life romantic partner, Oya, Oya Kod- Um uh, And it does have a lot of this sort of exhausting uh, qualities that can sometimes be a little tedious and sometimes be sort of how self-referential can you possibly get, but also it does feel like a sort of question of sort of trying to get a film made in the current Hollywood landscape at that time, and I found it to be also at times very moving.
4: All right. Bill Graham. Um... I found this to be pretty dense, pretty boring at first, I would say, Uh, confusing to say the least, Uh, as it slowly starts to give us more insight into what the film's trying to talk about and and things like that. I think it becomes much more interesting uh, when conversations are actually being had. Um, The editing and cutting style is maddening for the most part. But, I don't know, I mean, considering this took up so much of Orson Welles' life and his, you know, just determination to try and see this thing through, um, it's, it's, it is odd, but it's also kind of, like, a odd, way of of encompassing his kind of career and his life uh i think so yeah there's definitely a lot of self-referential stuff but uh, i think i think at the heart of it it has something to say but man you you have to kind of sift through so a lot of a lot of things that are going on in this film so um not not least of which is uh midgets running amok apparently (laughs) so yeah
0: all right michael snydell yeah, I find this
2: is probably the most entertaining uh, you know, like active antagonism I've ever seen, like as as a film, uh as Bill already said, like the early cinema verite parts of this are um a, the way that they're cut like it absolutely gives you this idea of being in the middle of not even just a party, but being around these people whose like entire life is just consumed by not only art but, like, their process in the art. Like, these are not necessarily people who you'd want to, you know, maybe have an extended period of time, or excuse me, spend an experiment extended period of time, but they are nonetheless just the way that, that this deploys language. I just the, the turn of phrases that so many characters have in here, which are at times just feel you know they feel sometimes like gibberish but they also perfectly add to the atmosphere the way that uh that early cinema verite then contrasts with the uh the film within a film which we already spoke about a little bit which i i know was meant to be a parody and is is meant to be laughed at but i found like really purely pleasurable <laughs> in a way i was not expecting Um, and then the ways that this folds in larger ideas about, uh, machismo and, you know, an exile director and the auto fiction that Caden referred to like this, I, I really found this a, like a journey that was dense, but I was really surprised how much fun I was having with it. From minute to minute, like from like bizarre sight gags with dummies to midgets, as has already been mentioned, um, to just like the, the score by Michelle Legrand, who I really had no idea was still doing scores in, uh, or, or excuse me, is still doing scores because I guess it's a, I believe it's a more recent score. Hopefully someone, uh, has that information. But, yeah, um,
1: just, oh, it is. It is uh he apparently only recently watched the film, uh, but yeah he it was a recent score, which I'm surprised by as well
2: yeah that's that's just amazing because you know he's done he's been responsible for some of the most memorable scores from you know people like demi and Godard and uh, anyways though um I digress, though i again, I was just really surprised how even if there were many things that were left unsaid, I just kind of loved how this movie is a little bit of, you know, it, it's at once like very emotional about the actual relationships, but it's also very much a fuck you to an audience who's expecting any type of type of uh, clean unpacking um, of any of these characters. Um, and so even by the end, yeah, I, again, there's a lot that I didn't understand, and that's totally fine. But, um, yeah, uh, by the end, it's it, it becomes about way more than just these characters than, as Bill was saying, just kind of the end of kind of a, a monolithic, like, contradictory career.
0: I was deeply unmoved by this movie. <clears throat> um. I don't know. I like so it opens up and there's a whole there's a whole thing about like I guess the introduction from Netflix or from the producers is like we're going to try to we tried to put this together as best we can using like an assembly print and hundreds of hours of footage and like an annotated script and everything. And he had put together 45 minutes I believe.
2: Uh, yeah. Sorry, Orson Welles had before he passed.
1: Yeah. And- 40, 45 minutes.
0: And just given how crazy and weird the movie is, you know, it's it's hard to, like, it, it's still hard for me in my mind to, like, say that this is, like, a Wells film. Because even though, like, he shot it and he directed it, you know, he, he himself said that, like, movies are made in the edit. And so it's it's weird. And it's interesting in a way, but all, it's it's kind of in that that same way that, like, Nabokov died and like apparently has a couple books but he didn't want them published because he didn't think they were good and they needed mm. editing and he wasn't done tinkering people are like release them anyway but it's like you know if the artist isn't ready to release it maybe it's just not done you know like maybe maybe it's not don't pick up the meal halfway through and and then set it aside for a couple years and then and then put a new cook on it and <laughs> it's um it's a it's a it's an okay movie like you know i i think that like once you get past the initial the initial like haha of you know some cineast asshole asking if uh like a movie is a reflection of reality or reality is a reflection of the movie or if the camera is just a phallus and and just like nonsense (laughs) like that it's it's like it's it's just like it's a it's a maybe this would have had more impact if it had come out when it was shot, because like you would have had that zeitgeisty kind of like new Hollywood, you know, someone from like the old studio system battling like new Hollywood and foreign art house pretension, you know, not even aware that like the blockbuster was on the way to tear it all apart anyway. And, Mm. and instead it's just like this weird way too cerebral, without being visceral deconstruction of like a hyper-masculine filmmaker, uh, like ironically or just hilariously played by John Huston. And I don't know, like after a while, just you could kind of feel, you kind of feel like the, uh, the weirdness of like, okay, we're going to screen part of the movie now. And then we're going to screen part of the movie now. Um, Oh no, the lights have gone out. Okay. We've set up a generator. Okay. We're going to screen another part of the movie. Oh no, the lights have gone out again. We're going to have to go to this drive-in. And it's just like, I can feel the movie struggling to like have a reason for them to keep watching this movie, but like still breaking it up into pieces so that they can like have their verite found footage style going on. And I, like, again, it was like, it's interesting in a purely analytical way. And even then, it's almost like I'm just watching someone having curated the bits and pieces that might have one day become a movie. And so it's hard for me to really say, like, how does this feel as an Orson Welles film? Like, how does it feel as just an interesting cultural artifact? Like, it's weird. It's weird that, like, it's it's it exists at all, in all honesty. Um, I watched... They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, which is the documentary that's kind of a companion piece to this, and I don't know, the more they talked about it, you know, I'd already seen the movie by that point, but the more they talked about it, the more I was like, why did anyone think this was a good idea? Like, what, why did they do it? Like, you know, they talk about, oh, Orson, like, he wanted to make this so much, like, it was, like, breaking his heart that the Iranians stole it, which is not me being glib, um that's a legitimate thing that happened and i just like you know i just like i just you know i write i'm a writer i've like quote unquote completed two novels but like i'll never be able to publish them because i just can't stop tinkering with them and i don't think they're good enough yet and i've like legitimately had to tell people in my life like if i die burn my computer like find Mm -hmm. every copy and Mm -hmm. destroy them do not For the love of God, ever release anything that I have written that did not get published already while I was alive, because I will hunt you down in ghost form (laughs) and destroy your life. And so this movie felt just very removed and very weird. And, you know, even just trying to watch it for like some mild form of entertainment started to fail at some point because I was like, you know, I can get it. He's he's a dick and he's not nice to people and and hollywood is dumb like you know we've we've been there we've been through that and the fact that it was shot and made by orson wells who clearly had issues with hollywood it makes it more interesting but it's slightly neutered by the fact that he's not the guy who finished it and and so for me this this whole it was like 2 hours of my life that i'm not like upset are gone forever but like that probably i almost would have valued having watched a different movie even if it was worse even if it was super dumb, but just a movie that was like completed by the person who started it.
2: I, I just want to ask briefly, I, I'm just curious what the time between you finishing other side of the wind and watching, uh, they'll love me when I'm dead. How did your, I, I know you said how it changed while watching that doc, but between that, uh, what was, what evolved? Um, sorry doing? that what evolved that you decided you wanted to watch the documentary
0: i i know oh, it I autoplayed on netflix and i wasn't fast enough to find the remote and so at that point i was just like all right whatever this is um depressing uh, uh, answer <laughs> yeah i mean it's a super depressing answer and i'm sorry that i have to give it but like it literally started four minutes after the movie or four seconds after the movie ended sure like first of all there goes netflix fucking up the ending of a movie because like it doesn't give you any breathing room it doesn't get like i feel fear when something ends on netflix because unless i want a goddamn trailer for like zach and cody save the fucking universe or something i have to like scramble for my remote just to make sure that the next thing doesn't autoplay like yeah that a trailer doesn't pop up or something
4: i i remember i remember um I can't remember what we finished, but we finished something the other day. And I was like, oh, yes, like the trailer, like uh, the credits music is beautiful. And then all of a sudden it was like three, two, one. I was like, no, fuck you, man. Wait.
0: It's especially (laughs) annoying. This is is slightly on topic because Netflix is the one who brought us this movie. My daughter (laughs) likes to watch things. Um, You know, we watch Hilda, which is a delightful animated series. Um, But we also watch like Newsies and Coco and Moana and oh, it was Coco.
3: Yeah. Well, there you go.
0: And I was like, I was like, yes. But if you're watching on the kids profile, you got to swap fast or you're going to see some animated mermaids talking some nonsense about how they have to save their island. And like, I just I just don't need that in my life. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wonder what it would have been like to have watched this in a theater where you know the cat's not jumping on me and <laughs> when the when when the credits start playing i know i can sit there and just watch the names roll by um this was a, i i had i had to watch the credits for the documentary twice because i was trying to see if that was alan cummings but it i couldn't alan read comments at the beginning <laughs> did it cuz like yeah. when i when i looked at the credits at the end like it would not name him and i looked it up on imdb and it would not name him and i i you know i was just like i guess i was so distracted by the fact that the other side of the wind had now become this documentary and then like i kept trying to figure out how to make the giant your trailer is coming soon thing go away so i could just get back to the credits and i failed like twice and it just annoyed the shit out of me and so i wonder if i had seen this in a theater and then upon leaving the theater not been immediately bombarded by a whole other feature you know if maybe like sitting with it like that might have made me feel a little better you know it might have given me more time to live with this as the thing that it is this is the most foggy we've ever sounded about sounded about netflix and that's saying something <laughs> But, you know, to to once again dip into my food metaphors, it's like if you have a really great meal and then someone immediately slaps a fucking spare rib on your plate and says, now eat this, too. (laughs) And it's like, well, I guess I fucking got it sitting in front of me. So, like, yeah, I'm going to be the most negative person on this, probably. And I feel bad about that because as I was watching, I was like, there's so much to talk about here. This is such an interesting artifact, but I can't sink my teeth into it in terms of like a narrative or a film or even just something that Orson Welles created because like in the back of my mind I'm still thinking to myself but did he? Did he really?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean I think that's a subject we're gonna grapple with on this podcast even if you didn't have such a strong a strong reaction to that like you know even if that wasn't a barrier to entry for you yep. a little bit.
0: So, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm a downer. No, that's fine. <laughs> I'm interested, Caden, hearing hearing my negative response butting up against your, you know, you felt like you were on cloud nine watching this. And you <laughs> clearly had the theatrical experience. Like, does anything I say, like, is it something that you can, like, even understand, like, academically? Or do I just sound like a madman?
1: <laughs> I mean, it's difficult for me to remove my own personal adoration and uh, respect for Orson Welles, and I feel like that absolutely gained inform my own reaction uh, to the film, I would say, when I was young. I would say Hitchcock and Orson Welles were the two film directors that my parents, who are not like cinephiles at all, but were the directors that they told me about, and told me to watch Citizen Kane, told me to watch Touch of Evil, and going through his career, and the ebbs and flows of his career, looking into the failed projects, uh the lesser known films that uh thankfully are now more widely available than they were, say, a couple of decades ago. Um I find a lot of pleasure finding his whole career and not just uh being tied to the popular uh notion that that's he wasn't so much uh considered like one-hit wonder, but he, every, but, like, say, the Battle over Citizen Kane documentary made it sound sound like he never made a great film again after that, and it's sort of fascinating to look at his whole career and uh, be in the position of reappraisal and uh, reconsideration of his whole career. So... <clears throat> As far as uh, sort of my point of view, going up against yours, um, I completely understand the perhaps struggle to get into this because it is a very dense work. There is a meta text going on, but you're wondering, does that justify the length of this? Does it justify this whole reconstruction? Like, I do get that perspective. And I also wonder, like, would my reaction be different as uh, not being as into Orson Welles as I am, as I stated before, because I do know plenty of smart people who kind of were bored with the film as well, and uh, those included people who actually were at the press screenings and also the public screenings at the film fest. So it's difficult for me to, again, try to remove my interest in Orson Welles and try to look at this as like somebody who perhaps only like knew the guy for one thing, but I find the pleasures knowing Wells' whole career or as much as I can know pretty much, because there's probably still a lot of other projects he did that are still hidden and not seen.
0: Yeah, did you did you watch the um the documentary that's on Netflix, The Love Me When I'm Dead?
1: Uh, yes, I did. Um,
0: yeah, because they, they did a rundown of like all the stuff that he just never finished. And my like, like four, my <laughs> jaw is on the floor. I was like, first of all, Don Quixote movies are cursed. That's just we just all got to <laughs> yeah. agree. Uh, the only successful Don Quixote adaptation ever was an episode of Wishbone. Um, <laughs> and then he had like the oh, deep. God bless that dog. The deep, and they were like, he just had to loop the actors, but he never did it. And then there was another one where they're like, yeah, he, he said that someone just stole the audio, and so he couldn't finish it. <laughs> and there's there was a part of me that wondered. And someone finally put voice to it. Someone said in in that film, like, I think that he never wanted to finish this. And I was like, yeah. maybe that's true. Like, it's it it comes off as like a little. It, it just makes sense that like a person who's that frustrated and doesn't know when they'll get to make something again will will like somehow put themselves into a position of like eternal purgatory where they can mm-hmm. live in like the unfinished mess of like everything it's it's the same thing that makes people just like you know just do anything repeatedly like you know oh i'm like uh, completely reorganizing my my garage again because like if i stop i'll die and I
2: can't help but think of current Woody a little bit, current Woody Allen. Like, I know that's not a direct parallel, but, yeah. like, just when you hear as far as interviews in relation to even his last, you know, three, four films, you know. Um,
4: Wait, w- did those come out last month? <laughs> <laughs> that guy fucking never stops working. I don't understand.
0: Well, it's very easy to make a movie a year when you're not invested in them being good.
4: <laughs> exactly.
2: That's true but maybe even maybe even a better metaphor and you know Brian this is probably something i have a double standard on that's unfair as you know like after prince passed there's been a lot of talk about all the things in the vaults and you know so like there was a piano album that they put out this year that was pretty fantastic and, and didn't like
4: they, didn't they do that with bowie as well no i think uh, i thought bowie I released
0: that? like an album like and then died 4 days later like he, yes yeah he meant for that to happen but prince just but, never stopped yeah. working, and had, like...
2: Mm-hmm. I don't know. Had, had no, there was a, there was a big of, unreleased of thing mm-hmm. I know you're talking about, Bill, but I don't know if that was after he passed. Uh, okay. And, anyways, I'm, I'm sorry. I guess my point was that, like, you know, Prince, I, as you were saying, just as Orson Welles kind of did, Prince emphatically said that he did not want these things released. Like, they were in a vault for a reason. You know, whether they were studio albums, whether they were live albums. And I think that, like, I, I feel very conflicted about that and feel far less conflicted for some reason about, about this. Um,
0: Ken, and do you, do you know why you feel that way? Have you done any searching in your soul about why that would be?
2: No, okay. I, I think, I think if I would have read again, a direct quote about Orson saying that, you know, it's his edit or, 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 you know, I mean, I guess that's already out there. I, I mean, considering how much he fought studios, what happened with Magnificent Ambersons, what happened with uh, Mr. Arcadian, which has something like 10 different versions or something. But, like, yeah, I don't know. I, I think because of the Prince thing, like, it, it did seem... Like, something about the very idea of, like, a vault, even if it's not actually a vault, made it seem far more of a violation than how i metaphorically view the culmination of this project and i guess uh I, again i it's a double standard i'm not sure quite where i'm going so what but you're saying is
0: uh, i need to get a vault because the harder <laughs> it is to get to my shit the more it's gonna seem like i really meant it Yes. <laughs> I mean, like, exactly it, it's weird though, because, like, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but apparently, Emily Dickinson never wanted any of her stuff to be published. Like, she wrote it, she wrapped it up, and she said, When I die, please destroy these. And then I think, like, her sister in law or something mm-hmm. picked through her stuff and was like, Oh shit, this is really good. Uh, each one of them can be sung to the theme of Gilligan's Island. We should definitely publish these. And they <laughs> oh. did. And, like, you know, great American poet you know like learned about from everyone in high school has to read them like definite impact on the culture but like is that our place is it our place to do that to people like to wrest the agency from the dead and then and then put things out that they never meant to see i mean like again i think of it just like in the way that like i have like 17 short stories on my computer that i wrote because i was half drunk and bored like and they're not For publication, they're like, I think it would be funny to see how I would handle writing a Court McCarthy story. Or, like, I think it would be funny to write something in the second person, which is an insane thing that I did (laughs) once. And, like, that's not, I'm not going to send those out to literary magazines. I'm not going to, like, try to put them into a book or something. But, like, if I, heaven help me, ever become famous for writing and then die, and then someone finds those, they could, like, slap them together and be like, the unreleased works. Of Brian J. Rowan, and then you're gonna have some snooty critic who's like, I think there's a reason these were unreleased. And it's like, yeah, he knew they weren't any good, or he wouldn't have put it out there. <laughs> and so and so, like, in viewing this movie, to bring it back to the the, the item at hand, I just feel like if he was never done, it, maybe he maybe he would have liked to go shoot more. Like, maybe he needed to do so like. And again, the documentary is almost essential for like viewing this in its full context, especially given the fact that like it was made thirty three years after he died, and it, it, like he says, like I, I you know I keep tinkering with it, like maybe it won't even be the movie, maybe it'll just be people talking about the movie getting made, like not even the other side of the wind and uh, the other side of the wind, but second level the other side of the wind, and then the documentary seems to jokingly agree with this by ending with a title card that says the other side of the wind directed by Orson wells (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is crazy um and i don't know i don't know i don't know i don't know how to i don't know how to wrestle with that like in my soul like and and i don't know that question of authorship just comes up a lot because even just talking about the movie as it stands like you know my my statements about it's kind of like weird tortured structure and its repetitiveness and it's like surface level like very deeply felt anger but very surface level representation of that anger like i don't know who to blame for that like i could blame wells but if this was stuff that he was never going to include in the first place then it's it's weird to blame him when i should be blaming frank marshall or peter bogdanovich you know, it's 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 weird. It's 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 hard to know how to how to approach this. I think it makes it even even more difficult
2: to I mean, I, I don't necessarily agree that there's like a, a flat representation of, of anger here. But I think that it's weird because it's also being filtered through so many facsimiles of other people yeah. who like admittedly, based on the context of the documentary, in most cases, didn't actually know what was Going on, Like, I, you know, a major incidents in the film seem to be a surprise as much to the cast and crew as to the – like, it, 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 I do have to say, like, I, I kind of – I don't really like that documentary as a documentary, but I agree that it is kind of an essential companion in the sense of even in just showing uh, Wells' direction style, which is, you know, almost just barking at people – Uh, while, you know, filming is going Mm -hmm. on, which I'm not saying that it's, uh, you know, I'm not saying that doesn't happen with direction, but just uh, seeing the certain like uh, inability to compromise in something that's meant to be seen as real and in the moment. So it's this fascinating and, and it's fascinating too, considering when, even he seems to, even Orson Welles seems to see himself as a control freak throughout his career. So this was created as a way of just kind of doing, uh, of, um, sorry, r- racking up divine incidents, I-, I believe is the term he uses in the documentary. Um, So it is, it is very, it's hard to reconcile all of those pieces. Guys, I think I lost you. No, you're still
0: here. I'm still
4: here. Uh, okay, sorry. Yeah, I sure uh, Um,
0: apologies. Michael uh, was hoping that he was cut off because what? clearly he's lost the thread of his argument. No,
2: I haven't. I haven't. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is that like uh, it, the the very contradictory and strange thing about this is that I am reconciling all of those things that prote- potentially make this piece of art feel all the more unfinished and all the more fragmentary and. I, like, there seems to be a lot of evidence supporting that, but I think it's odd because textually, this also feels like a a piece that is constantly just, like, joking around and, you know, trying to capture something that, you know, doesn't have the same, like, almost level of ego that's represented when we talk about, you know, it, it, it's just kind of weird because – this story is almost at once like the the ultimate auteur discussion. Like we talk about so many of these major auteurs, you know, you know, and and I guess I'll, I'll go to the two major uh classic ones we often talk about in terms of control, which is uh, Kubrick and Hitchcock. And like what was required in making these great works and like I I think that again like that awareness and how that folds into the story in a way that like doesn't just feel like an accidental projection to me is really fascinating and like how you have characters who are at once like meant to seem you know like fools but also have kernels of wisdom like like you think of julie rich's uh character played by susan strasberg like she's meant to be a pauline uh Kale, um, yeah, avatar, but she's also like has a lot of fascinating things to say about, um, about Jake Hannaford's like identity and like also the, the boxes that we push a lot of these stars into based on like what we think, I, you know, and especially coming from a this, this is the end of my statement, I promise, <laughs> especially coming from a director, you know, like. Parts of this movie almost seem like an encapsular, like a feature-length extension of the intro of F for Fake to me. Like the entire idea of, you know, I'm going to do magic in front of you and do you want to know it's magic or do you want to just enjoy it? And there's a lot of that, which is strange to say because there's not really like special effects in this. This is not something that... The camera trickery is not something that's, you know, uh, sorry, I'm all over the place, but I just, I guess, I I guess a better way to talk about this is just like, uh, Brian and uh, Bill, I, I get the sense that you seem more skeptical about that sense of shape, about whether, you know. Let's ignore for the fact whether it was specifically cultivated by Orson. Do you guys find this to be unfinished? Maybe that's the best way to have a more productive conversation about this? I'm
0: going to let Bill run with this one for a second.
4: (laughs) I I don't understand what you're asking.
0: Okay, I'll do it. Um, (laughs) You, I... Actually, yeah, I don't know. So you ask, like, if it feels unfinished and like, I don't know how to, I don't even know really how to answer that. Um, it's it, it's a hard movie to talk about. By essence, by essence, it must feel unfinished because sure, I don't have the man who breathed life into it telling me that it's done. I have a bunch of people saying, yeah, this is probably good enough. And mm-hmm. I have to assume that they wouldn't have released it if they didn't feel like they could get it right. But there's still not the guy in the chair to to quote Train Spotting, you know. Like, it's it's I don't know. Like, I, and I just don't I don't know if it's unfinished. Like, like I said, like what if he had just wanted to like throw out the entire movie within the movie and like reshoot it? You know, what if what if he had decided that you know like they had a different person playing brooks Otterlake, which is a fantastic name and and then peter bogdanovich stepped in to play him and like just like life became more and more like the movie and the movie became more and more like life which again is a super interesting concept considering that the movie asks that itself and and everything but it really does come off as more of like it it, like it feels more like a a pursuit in his life that is given shape in the form of a film than a finished and completed film itself. And so I don't know what more could have been done to make it feel complete. I feel like the story it tells progresses as it must um, and, and gets to where it's going, but it, it it never really lands with me. And, And part of it is that question of authorship. But again, another part of it is just, Maybe he could never finish it because it was too ambitious. Maybe he could never finish it because he kept morphing his idea of what it was. Like I've, I've, I've scrapped things that I was writing like a hundred pages in because I realized that the thing that I set out and wanted to write got away from me. And suddenly I was creating something else that wasn't as meaningful. And that's a, it's a horrible moment when you, when you realize that, but like. You know, I've gone back and rewrote things and edited stuff and changed tenses and character names. And then I'm just like, nope, nope, it's never going to be what I thought it was or what I wanted it to be. And and so that that happens. Um, I'm, I'm curious, though, uh, Caden, you 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 liked this movie. You, you really liked it. You had you had your cloud nine moment to, to your mind. Does this does this really feel like, complete? Does this feel like you imagine it would have if Wells had, like, finished it?
1: Well, as stated, like, he did edit, uh, about 40 to 45 minutes of the film, so about a third of the film. It's actually quite fascinating to look back because I do believe in the AFI tribute, uh, that's still up on YouTube. It does include a uh, sizzle reel, so to speak, of the movie that essentially he edited to basically just try to get investors to give him money. Because part of the whole problem was, of course, the whole issue of funds. And unfortunately, the sort of tragedy was that he kept sort of having this sizzle reel of both the movie within the movie to sort of show the kind of... New Hollywood parody that he was doing, but also uh, the sort of uh, found footage verite that he was also doing that had uh, Bogdanovich pro- prominent. In that there was still like nobody who wanted to bite, and um, it did seem that he, based on the participation of both Codere and Bogdanovich, I do, I am under the impression that he definitely wanted this to be done, or at least there was some idea or through line of how he wanted this finished. Now, as far as the sort of finished product, like, I've seen, like, uh, works by, say, probably used the Wandering soap opera and uh, Bill Gunn's personal problems uh, recently that... Not actually sure. Uh, personal problems was had an issue of being finished, but in the Ruiz's case, like there's been a bunch of stuff that's been sort of released and shown at festivals that uh, are posthumous and after his death. And uh, the Wandering Soap Opera could definitely be a companion piece or a companion film to show with this of sort of the whole deconstruction of what exactly makes a finished film, by an auteur. Uh, But, uh, the film, the other side of the win itself, I mean, (coughs) I do think that the whole issue at hand, the whole meta context of it, of sort of the struggles of getting this film finished, also kind of can play with your mind, of sort of like, well, what about the film itself here? And, I do think Wells is playing with that, and I think it's kind of an irresistible uh, sort of blue line to go with if you're, uh, say, the editor of this film as well. So it is a really interesting object. Like, I can't say definitively, like, oh, yeah, it's totally finished, but I do think, like, I can't say definitively if. This is, like, totally finished, but, like, based on the people who are still alive and who are close to him, I do think this is probably the best we can possibly get. But I know that can sometimes still be a sort of disappointing thing to sort of think, like, this man's whole career is kind of defined uh, by stuff not really being directly sort of controlled by him. Uh, You know, his sort of uh, prized projects get taken away from him or re-edited. That's why he left Hollywood in the first place. Uh, so, yeah, I do kind of understand that sort of tricky sort of consideration of his whole career given who he was and was. Can inform your opinion about uh, how you view this film's authorship?
0: Yeah, for me, it's it's sort of a question of it's like the greed of the audience. You know, it's like it's this is the best that we're ever gonna get maybe but like maybe we didn't deserve to have it in the first place um sure like sure. maybe and, you know and, and, if you didn't finish it like who are we to demand that it gets finished after he dies
4: and, and this is the push and pull of of art versus commerce just in general right is is do we deserve the art that we get if we have to yank it out of someone's Cold dead hands and finish it for ourselves like at what point is that true art and at what point is that just a you know uh, just striving for commercialism just to finish a product and it's like is that going to have some kind of soul or is it going to be a lifeless dead object that's kind of you know a, a totem to this person and so that's that's always been the push and pull is, you know, a lot of people see movies and they see it just strictly as commercialism and some people see it just strictly as art. And there's always that push and pull between the two because, I mean, as Orson Welles has, you know, obviously uh, pushed against and as a lot of filmmakers have found out, um, if you are not commercial, it's very difficult to continue being an artist because art sometimes especially in the film medium takes quite a bit of money and you know to work within a studio system certainly fucking helps because that just streamlines everything and so you know that's that's kind of the nature of of this entire thing and and where does it end up it ends up on netflix (laughs) it's it's just like okay it's just
0: weird to me because like (laughs) It's like the struggle of art and commerce, like, we need to squeeze more blood out of this stone, but, like, how much? How much do you think you can make off of this film? <laughs> you I remember
1: it was an Indiegogo campaign. Oh, it was? Yeah, it started initially oh, as that. Wow. <laughs> and I forget, like, they did raise a lot of money, but I'm not sure it necessarily hit the sort of threshold that it was trying to meet, but... That, i'm but.
4: just i'm i'm baffled that that um what's her face just didn't write a check and just be like go finish this fucking thing um who is what's her I face kind of, oh, yeah, <laughs> um, about uh-huh. megan megan uh ellison
0: oh, oh. you can't just oh. bring in a whole new name to this podcast and try to <laughs> what? say what's her face <laughs> i was legitimately you know? like sybil shepherd like who <laughs> <laughs> no the the
4: one woman that has that kind of power in Hollywood now. Well, not to get too inside baseball, but Anna, yeah. Anna
0: Perna's got its own problems going on.
1: Yes, it does. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah uh, Larry Ellison is apparently sort of stepping in uh, to, I don't know, uh, try to be a little more conservative, I guess, on. What they're going to be financing in the future?
0: I yeah, guess. they had like one or two things that were just like too big, and so someone finally said, "Like maybe, maybe we need to stop just cutting checks to people." <laughs> and so they've they've decided not to do what was it like the Roger Ailes movie mm-hmm. and something else. Anyway, yeah. Oh so God. that's just just Jeez. playing off of Bill's what's her name thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean it's it's just and i don't want this podcast to just get turned into a whole bunch of people talking about we know, talk intellectual about text at some point <laughs> intellectual properties like just getting batted around but like weirdly um i don't know when it's coming out uh maybe it was this weekend but the girl in the spider's web
4: mm-hmm. is steve larson and everything like that yeah, yeah. and that's, so that's that's fucking like that that's some wild ass shit if you if you follow up on like that story of how that that uh what is it the fifth book or whatever the fuck it is like well
0: yeah. there was the, the original the posthumous one there was the original yeah. millennium trilogy which was uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo the girl who Cornet. kicked the hornet's nest and the the fire one i don't know yeah the girl yeah, who, who played with, with fire. fire yeah the girl who played with fire thank you everyone who actually knows what they're talking about um <laughs> but the girl I'm in the spider's <laughs> web is is like the the like the you know Uh, like weird side cool kind of like rainbow six novels or like the 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 born legacies you know where it's like well the original creator died it doesn't matter we just need to have like the naming convention and like people will follow the property and like in those cases the person died and someone needs to make money you know and 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 in this case it's just weird because like it's It's not not like robbing (laughs) yeah this is like this is, this is weird because it was something that he was still working on. They had to finish it. But it's also weird because it's, it's I, like, people on Twitter kept talking about, like, are you film boys happy now? Like, Netflix, The Great Scourge of Evil, like, gave you this missing masterpiece from a guy. And I'm like, but I don't know that they did. And I feel like their motives are corrupt. Like, you know, if you watch The Good Place, you will know that if your motivation is corrupt you don't get the good place points you know you don't get nothing and and so it's just weird to me it's it's weird cuz like are they going to make a lot of money off this probably not like are they going to get a little bit better press than they usually get probably but like maybe that's not our place you know it's like if <laughs> it's like george r r martin died and you know uh, simon schuster whoever the hell publishes his novels is like it's cool we've got a ghostwriter and all of his handwritten notes on the back of like in and out burger bags. And so we're gonna we're gonna put it together. It'll be fine. You know, it's like sure you're getting this thing that you think you wanted, but is the inferior and maybe not inferior, but maybe just not the genuine version enough for you. And but doesn't the nobility change it of the people actually putting it together? Like
2: this isn't, as you're saying, the same as the Steig Larsen yeah. uh situation.
4: Like I I, I, well, I feel like I yeah, think- I, I I I think – I understand what you're getting at, Mike, but I think what what Brian is saying is that no matter the involvement of people around Wells, we just cannot definitively say this is the version that he would have ultimately released into theaters or whatever venue he would have found, right? So, I mean, we can say – that it has a lot of good names behind it and there's a lot of goodwill behind it and there's a lot of notes and things like that that they were able to kind of put together and and figure out what his intentions were and, you know, a 45-minute rough cut and all of this. But it's like, would he, would he have actually released it or would he have gotten halfway through this process and just been like, nah, fuck it, like, this thing's trash, you know? And it's like, and we're seeing it. And we're seeing it in its somewhat completed form, which is almost even more of a bastardization of it because, like, release the 45-minute cut, maybe, instead. And then let us kind of have our own ideas of where it goes from there and stuff like that. And instead we get... And look, I'm sure more than likely the 45 minutes... Whatever cut that exists in, I'm sure they probably just tried to cut around it and basically just you know put a put a front and put a back on it. More than likely, you know, I mean, if they're smart, they're not trying to recut that cut. So you know, I don't know.
0: For me, you know, you bring up the nobility, like you know, it's and that. That makes the motivation less mercenary and it makes me understand the desire for it more, but I'm not, I'm not the one producing this. I am the one who is, who's viewing it and, and the people around me are the people who are viewing it. And, and so I, I come at it from like both angles, but like just, you know, as an, as a consumer who, who gets shown a lot of things and, who sees, you know, the creations of people get changed and bastardized and and everything. I mean, it's, it's still, it's, it's like the, it's, it's like a, I kept, I almost keep saying treason. I don't know why, but it's, it's like, um, it's just not right. It's, it's, if, if you're, I don't know, it, for some reason, the analogy that popped into my head is, um when people died in the civil war and then their widows would marry their brother. Like, (laughs) I don't, Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Wow. The same thing happened with the whalers on Nantucket. Like if someone died, then, then one of his shipmates would marry his wife so that she wouldn't like die of starvation. And like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's nice and it's kind, but you're not going to still say that the man who was lost at sea is the father of that family you know like there is a fundamental shift that has happened and you can't say that where that family ends up is exactly where it would have ended up if their father hadn't been lost at sea and this is a crazy analogy and i almost yeah, apologize <laughs> you
4: you just you don't know you might end up with the with the bad twin in you know kind of a reverse <laughs> of the prestige or something look we've all <laughs> seen
0: we've all seen summers be. um <laughs> You sound as obsessed with betrayal as Orson Welles. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's like, you know, the worst thing you could do is betray a friend, and I was like, you damn right, Orson. And then I just lifted a bottle of whiskey to my lips and drank for three minutes. Um, Okay, we need to actually talk about the movie. (laughs) Right, right. I was gonna say we've we've really talked around it, Uh, but like, here's the thing: is that again, this is just this is like with Suspiria last week, where I was like, I don't give a shit about the story. In this case, I don't feel that negative towards it but like the movie is so dense in its montage and so full of stuff and seems to be almost so meta that i couldn't even really get into it as a story so i i am curious and you know i i guess um Caden, as as our guest, you know, how did this work for you on a story level? Like, were you watching this and just were like, oh, my God, Jake Hannaford, Brooks Otterlake, these guys?
1: Like, I have to admit, like, I had only seen a little bit of the original footage. So when the initial sort of trailer dropped, I was kind of like gobsmacked of what this was going to possibly look like uh, and be. Um so yeah, the sort of sort of hangout sort of vibes of sort of that sort of crowd of this sort of all boys' club of like directors who are honoring their sort of living legend film director who has returned from exile to possibly sort of make a film and sort of show that he is keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak, with them by making this very ponderous sort of art movie with no dialogue and trying to show it and try to see if he can get it finished while also being interviewed by a bunch of cameramen that he himself called in and invited, but is getting increasingly cagey, but also performative. Uh, around them so it was sort of interesting to sort of get into that get into that movie as that entry point um uh, michael sort of mentioned f or fake it's kind of fascinating to sort of think that wells himself was doing f or fake around the same time he was also making this uh, Mm -hmm. especially as far as him sort of doing a deconstruction of what is real and what is not and just the whole documentary fiction and documentary and non-fiction filmmaking of that so i did kind of find that fascinating um and um and as far as um uh as far as uh, again the film within the film uh god i knew that uh, Wells did not like antonioni but i did know he hated him <laughs> that much uh, this,
0: it's the 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 film within the film, the other side of the wind, is truly God. the most damning piece of criticism ever leveled. <laughs> it's, it's so
4: so just wow. Yeah. And I, yeah, I love I, I love the sequence in the in the screening room where the guy's like is there a script? And then the producer guy is just like
1: uh-uh.
4: <laughs> He's just making it up as he goes and it's like, no shit
1: <laughs> And Yeah, and uh, Later finding out uh, From the documentary That the house where this whole party Has taken place was actually near Where Zabriskie Point was also <laughs> Had that iconic sort of Blowing up scene, and I was like, oh jeez Damn Orson <laughs> He went hard on that <clears throat> Yeah, and I, say that some, and I say that as someone who actually likes the Brisky porn, so it was very sort of funny to me that this was all happening. It's kind of when like when Tarantino tears into Ford, and I'm like, oh, I like both of you guys. But... <laughs> don't
0: fight, don't fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. Um... It's <laughs> and again, it's weird because we were like, we totally just have to talk about this movie, and then we still we still bring up the documentary because of all the the rich metatextual land that we should be tilling. And it's, um, yeah, that, that fucking, I mean, I could just, it's almost funny. I think it would be easier to talk about the movie within the movie titled the other side of the wind. Um, just because like, it's so, it's so weird. And it's, it's strange how for as much as he's like, spitting on that whole genre um it's he's still doing such great work in that movie like the abandoned like the the weird camera angles the 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 reflections that weird bathroom scene the the car scene the the bathroom and the car scene are like some virtuoso shit man and you know, it, it, we're going to have to talk about the documentary again. In the documentary, they talk about how, like, he was hel- – the guy was helping to edit the bathroom scene. So I assume that's maybe part of the the 45 minutes that he did. Um, yeah. and, he, uh, and he was, like, you know, with this trimming, like, individual frames. Like, there's so many cuts in this bathroom scene. Mm-hmm. And the bathroom mm-hmm. scene is so fucking weird. And the car scene is so fucking weird. And it's, like, it's – it's strange that something that is basically taking the piss out of this genre or like the style should be so enrapturing, and I think that that's like what good satire does, and like yeah, it's just super weird and well, I did I, think, I did I love maybe. the um i I loved the the studio lackey guy being like, well you know are we gonna show the bomb in her bag like are we gonna <laughs> yeah, say there's no. a bomb in her
1: bag and like yeah, it's it's sh- political. The sort of political, sort of, like, uh, again, riff that uh, that he was kind of making fun of Antonioni for kind of going from, oh, is this a sort of political intrigue to being like, oh, it's just about sex. Yeah, it's,
0: like I was about to say, but we don't even, like, broach the point that, like, at some point she loses literally every stitch of clothing (laughs) on her body and is just wandering around naked. It's...
4: And then runs across a
0: phallic, like, object at the very end of the oh, film.
4: God, the thing collapses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you're just like, wow, okay. <laughs> my, my girlfriend walked in at that point, and she was just like, oh, there's a, there's a penis tower in this movie. And I was like, yes, there is.
0: <laughs> you know, every once in a while, you just got to have a penis tower in your movie. you know it's so so thoughtful
2: though like it's so interesting that this movie at once feels so fetishistic and you know like like very uh acknowledges him as a voyeur like there's the scene where they're essentially having sex on on top of a metal uh sorry a metal bed frame mm -hmm. And, and you can hear wells direction as she's uh like uh, moving her hand
0: well it's, H- H- it's, it's it's houston's direction it's jake yeah it's, uh, direction yeah, yeah, yeah. no I'm, I'm sorry yeah i'm sorry about that you're I getting mean, pulled uh, into the vortex oh no. that is this
3: movie <laughs> oh. <laughs>
2: sorry it's uh yeah Manford's direction and, and just like but even the way that he's directing it's fascinating on like a level of where we are watching this in the same way as you know like uh as uh I'm sorry. Uh, Why can I not remember the director of Peeping Tom? Um, Uh, Yes, thank you. Uh, As Powell's uh, Peeping Tom. But then it it also just, like, is, like, a a really oddly sensuous scene despite being, you know, really creepy with his narration. Like, again, I guess what you're saying, Brian, is is just, like, even as he seems to have so much, uh, you know, disrespect and such petty for this like he's really drunk on like the possibilities of the art film and what he can just do with atmosphere like without like the burden of words
4: Mm -hmm. well I think I think it's always interesting when you have someone making fun of something but also putting forth their best best effort at that as well and basically, it's almost showing them up and saying, you guys are so lazy. You could do so many creative and interesting things by not being burdened with a storyline and everything like that. You can do so many interesting ca- camera angles and watch this. I will give you a sequence in a bathroom or a sequence when she's like chasing him through, I don't know, like a bone field? I don't know what the fuck that thing is. <laughs> uh, and they like keep disappearing Behind each other, it was a very Scooby-Doo kind of sequence for me. (laughs) I was just like, just find her already. Jesus Christ, what is going on in this place? Um, And so, like, all of that stuff is just like, hey, like, if you actually put forth the effort into making the visuals as interesting as possible, maybe the storyline not making a whole lot of sense would actually work a little bit better you know and so it's almost a satirical lambasting of them in that almost calling them lazy by showing how good he can show these certain shots and scenes and sequences and stuff like that um but yeah that's that's what i kind of took from it is is that he's kind of showing them up and just being like y'all are really lazy like <laughs> if, if i didn't if i didn't have to work w- inside the structure of having an actual narrative that made sense. I could just put my camera anywhere. Holy shit. Look what I can do, you know?
1: And, uh, to, um, to sort of go off of that as well. And I just also wanted to say, like, after watching that, it did suddenly make sense to me that, uh, Jess Franco of all people was, was assistant, uh, during the sixes. I believe he was, uh, Wow. He was, uh, I believe he was, like, did second unit stuff on Chimes at Midnight and uh, was also involved in a couple of those failed 60s projects. So suddenly, after watching uh, that movie within the movie, particularly, again, uh, the scenes in the car and the bathroom, I'm like, oh, now suddenly I totally get that (laughs) this, that perhaps it totally makes sense now that this... uh, prolific exploitation director was Orson Welles' <laughs> assistant.
2: That reminds me that I'm really didn't... curious to see the adult film that uh, Orson Welles apparently edited one scene of, <laughs> which is
0: a bizarre piece of trivia. <laughs> I've got to get my cinematographer back. i got to help edit this porno film. That is um, such an Orson... That's so Orson, right? Like That yeah. just makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> Well,
4: I mean, if you read some of his personal history, yeah, for sure, <laughs> that guy's uh, he's he's not one to mince words about being with ladies. Um, he uh, and she, the the main actress in this film, she actually co-wrote it. I saw that she was given co-writing credit. Yeah, she was yeah. his uh, yeah.
0: like lover
4: co-creator. Yes.
1: Yeah, for like 20 uh, years. so Yeah, they were involved in a couple of projects.
3: Um, F for fake.
1: Obviously, yeah, and obviously stuff that never came to fruition. Um, she, she's sort of been in sort of long-standing sort of legal uh, battles with trying to make sure that she gets the rights to a lot of uh, sort of the film reels of uh, unfinished mm-hmm. projects as well. And I believe other stuff as well, but yeah, uh, she got co-writing credit and apparently did have some sort of role in making sure that it was the again the film within the film did become as erotic as it was. Uh, hmm. so, um, she it is kind of fascinating the sort of sort of silent sort of non-entity that she is as both sort of the elusive woman, and also the kind of silent sort of Native American stand-in that she becomes at the party, but also does still manage to become a sort of asset for Hennifer to use
3: mm-hmm. within
1: that party, even though she's kind of being sort of taunted by him as a Pocahontas.
0: Yeah, it's weird. It's weird that uh, apparently Donald Trump did punch-up work on this film, and everyone keeps calling her Pocahontas.
1: Um, yeah, unfortunately, nice. I kept thinking, "I'm um, oh god, yeah, that's a Trump, that's a Trump, that's a Trump joke."
0: It's <laughs> especially weird because um, I looked her up. She is a Croatian actress, so she yep. is not in any way Native American.
1: Yep. I mean, the whole sort of revisionist Western sort of version that Hollywood was doing was like. Well we won't we won't do the stereotypes, but then we're going to have this very weird sort of relationship and claim Native American ancestry on <laughs> um, for people who are not Native American that's sort of Johnny Cash sort of false <laughs> sort of false history. so yeah, I, I was thinking about that and I'm like that is something of a peer of of what of the period that was happening at the time. And I'm not, and I wasn't quite sure if that film was sort of falling victim to that or was kind of sort of looking on that at all.
0: Yeah. The movie, the movie just again, because it's so, because it's so meta, because it's so like entwined in its satire, it's, it's hard to know. Like when people are talking about like, what was it? Like someone says like, that's Jewish thinking. Yeah. Because someone's like, well, something's got to make money, right? And it's like, oh, that's a real Jewish way to think of things. And I was like, okay, that's that's clearly them. That's satire, two right? two filmmakers
2: speaking to each other. <laughs> it's like, oh, like boy. two actual filmmakers. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> was it Mazurski and Jagan? Yes. Yeah. got the same. Yeah. Yeah, Mazurski is, uh, well, he's definitely Jewish. I'm not sure about Jaglen. Uh But yeah, that is kind of funny to sort of think about. <laughs> Like or is this just the kind of sort of uh Hollywood sort of confessional where people are just being way too honest and giving too much information, or is this sort of being uh guided by somebody who might have these sort of opinions of these types of people?
0: It's like um it's like reading anything by Breddy Snellis where he's just yeah. like He's so hateful that you don't know if he's just being very honest about how shitty other people are or if it's his own shittiness creeping in, (laughs) you know, like less than zero is like, (laughs) like, it could be both. Yeah. I mean, like reading less than zero, it's, it's still like, well, they talk a lot of shit about everyone. And it's like, it's clear that he grew up in that, that world. And so those are like ideas that he has heard. And I don't know if he's internalized them, but he's definitely not afraid to like put his circle on blast for being just the shittiest most racist group of people
1: yeah
2: well i think that is something kind of fascinating to speak a, a little bit um you know bring bringing in some specific characters I, I mean the it's really interesting that you know the boys club that caden referred to a little bit earlier around him, you know, they are people who who seem to have been with this, you know, fallen director, uh Jake Hanford for, you know, years and decades. Like yet, you, you know, and and there's even that um I'm sorry, there's like uh, not Henry, I apologize. Uh I'm trying to remember some of the characters. <laughs> uh Good you know, there's luck. there's a Billy, there's the Baron, there's um Oh, Zimmer. Like, and, and you know that they are people ranging from like who do all kinds of things on sets, you know, from the makeup person who has that great line about, you know, uh, how wrinkles tell you a lot about a person, um, or the, um, you, you know, the editor or the person who was meant to bring the school teacher who is, <laughs> who is the school teacher of his leading man. Like, but what I find fascinating about all of these people who are kind of in his inner circle is that, like, it's not even, like, they necessarily like or dislike each other, but more that they've been around each other so long that anything else, like, wouldn't make sense. Like, there's a certain, like, um...
1: A kind of family sort of unit that they have going?
2: Yeah. it is. It is a family unit, but it is even, like, a little bit more mercenary than that. Like, I I guess in a way that could be some families, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, I was really fascinated with the way that works and specifically how that relates to how Jake Hannaford, um, his history with leading actors and leading women, um, which is, you know, especially underlined with, Mavis, this, this, uh, this woman who keeps um refilling his drink. So, so oh, I guess.
4: Jesus, yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's a nightmare situation right there.
0: It's yeah. it's um, you know, it's <clears throat> the whole Mavis thing is just weird because it's like, yeah, she's like clearly a child who's at this party and. Mm-hmm. And and yet, like, weirdly, she's the one who keeps getting him drinks. Which usually I don't know if that's like I don't know if it's a weird thing to pick up on, but I was like, usually people would be plying her with alcohol. <laughs> mm-hmm. And in this movie, like she seems to be valued for her drink fetching skills. She's like, Oh, you're about three fourths of the way through that. I'll run what are, what off and get you one. And she's by a, the time you're done, I'll
1: be back. She's what a gopher in that case. It's yeah, like her one job getting people drinks.
4: <laughs> What do we make of uh, it's it's Houston, right? Uh, Not being able to uh, successfully get that alcohol into his mouth (laughs) at various points. Like, I was just like, what the fuck is is this choice right now? Like, even even if he's supposed to be sloppy drunk, like, Jesus, like, you're missing your mouth completely.
1: I mean, he was a legendary drinker. If Houston in real life, I'm not sure if, if he was just trying to imagine what it was like to sort of sort of separate his own sort of iconography from that or or it was just like, is this how people see me or not? OK,
0: <laughs> if you're if you are a legendary drunk, I say this is a former legendary drunk. It's very difficult to know how people act when they're drunk. Because usually you're so drunk when they are, too. Mm -hmm. There's never been a moment where you're sober around the drunk people. Because if people are getting drunk, you were probably drunk two hours ago. I do kind of love that it does
2: become a sight gag, though, uh, when later, you know, one of the people in the inner circle does something and he's like, oh, damn it, (laughs) When he actually spills. Like, he says something when he spills for the first time. You know, after we had been watching, you know, Houston spill for forty minutes, so I, <laughs> I did find it really funny that, the, and that was like right towards the end of the movie when the party's like, you know, uh, settling down. I, I, I was curious, you know, as far as another one that was a little bit, um, you know, I, I thought she was very fascinating. But w- what did you guys make of Zara? You know, the one who is hosting the party and is, uh, you know, also oh, it's supposed know? to be, I guess, his his ex-wife or something like that oh i didn't i didn't make that connection i thought there was it, it, definitely a history there oh
0: yes like, oh they, yes
2: yeah it was either like I thought they did half a movie together is what i i thought she says at one point
0: yeah like they either only did one movie or they like barely did one movie and then like she became like either his lover or his school mom or something they have like it's a very like, weird relationship
4: because he calls her mama at or something something along those lines at one point doesn't he he refers to her in like a yeah. like a older older style eternal uh, yeah yeah
0: people people yeah oh that that's why i thought they were married cuz i um cuz uh or or like something weird like that because like i just got finished watching rectify and mm-hmm. like you know apparently down south people will call a woman mother if she's either like well that's
4: their that's wife the joke or about, their joke about uh, uh that's the joke about uh uh <laughs> going back to trump uh his vice oh friend, no <laughs> that's what that's what he calls his wife he calls her mother
0: so, oh pence yeah yeah oh my Yeah. It's always weird for me when my wife is like talking to my daughter and she says, Go talk to dad about that. I'm like, oh God, where is he? (laughs) I'm just like, oh right, no, you're the dad now. You don't have to worry. Your father's not here. Um Not because I don't like my father, but just because I'm usually on edge when he's around, because I'm worried I'll disappoint him, which is the curse of being an Irishman. Um (laughs) But yeah, like it's it's things like that. Like there's a whole lot of stuff like that in this movie. Like bogdanovich's character brooks otterlake which again fantastic name um when he's like leaving jake for the last time he says like you know did i did i like do wrong daddy or something like that yeah. which i don't like, i don't know if i like like peter bogdanovich is great in this movie like he he's really good in it because i like i couldn't fucking deliver that line to save my soul <laughs> And then he does it well, and he also delivers like he is a rough magician, yes, like that's a that's a line that could be really bad, but he somehow imbues it with a lot of like broken sadness yeah yeah and Caden, what did you what did you make of um uh,
2: you know zara as well as uh, peter or as, as well as brooks
1: uh well, I immediately sort of thought that this was kind of sort of a sort of Marlena Dietrich sort of insert. Um, Obviously, she was in Touch of Evil Dietrich. And I forget if they might have been in another movie together, not another movie he directed for her. But um, yeah, that sort of relationship of trying to sort of, um, of sort of being a kind of sort of ghostly sort of figure in Hannaford's past of sort of being what he was and sort of represented but also had a kind of enigmatic sort of quality because I think there were times where she's being questioned and she can't really quite answer definitively because obviously there was her point of view of what, ha- what happened in certain cases and there was his point of view and he can't seem to answer anything for people. Um, So I thought that was kind of sort of interesting to sort of have this very sort of modern for the time sort of party, but then also have this one person whose whole place is the center of the party sort of being this uh, sort of uh, representation of his past, uh, Mm. of his past to be kind of interesting in that case. And, As far as Bogdanovich, obviously, like, the sort of degree where this was sort of the role he was born to play cannot be (laughs) sort of understated. Like, everything is sort of there. Like, obviously, people will say, oh, well, yeah, he does impressions. And this is a director who's gone from a mentee to a mentee to sort of being the king of Hollywood with his free hit movies but also the whole talk about the book that him and Orson Welles actually were doing as well at the time. Uh, so yeah, I thought Big Donovic was uh, great as sort of being the kind of uh, guy for Hannaford to sort of play off of, because, I mean, Rich Little was supposed to be in that role, and I just can't imagine him sort of being the type of guy for John Houston to sort of go back and forth and sort of have these playful sort of not quite parental, but very much uh, sort of student teacher sparring uh, type of sessions that they were kind of having both for the cameras and both sort of in this sort of deep interpersonal history. So, yeah, it was sort of fascinating to sort of see uh, Bogdanovich sort of probably be the most meta element of the film, uh, because he he of his relationship with Wells with Wells in real life and also um Zara uh played by Ruby Palmer, uh who apparently like there was a kind of disconnect where there are certain scenes where You definitely feel like all these people in the same room, and it turned out that Lily Palmer was actually shooting from Paris (laughs) um, or (laughs) something. And I'm like, oh yeah, that does kind of make sense of sort of being this kind of sort of uh, representation of a past that almost only Hannaford really interacts with. Because I think only, I only think. She doesn't really interact with many other characters besides uh, the sort of off-screen reporter in Hannaford really. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a weird thing. I uh, that you know it makes an odd amount of sense. And yeah, like you, Rich Little, the footage that's in that documentary of his performance, I thought he was kind of terrible. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I was—I
0: uh, was not a fan. No. Yeah, I
2: he was really sticky in a way that uh, Bogdanovich, like, absolutely was not. So it's—it's it's very strange that Wells wanted him in the first
1: place. Uh, well, you know, like yeah, There was a well, rough time in his life when he met him. <laughs> That's, That's true. true.
0: I think Wells is also the kind of guy who's like, this will be great. And then he sees it and he's like, "Mm, this is not living up. Like, you know, he's got the thing in his head. He's got the thing in his head and he wants to make it happen. And he thinks that this is the way to do it. But like, sometimes the thing in your head ain't going to work in real life. You know, like you're not going to be able to just lift up that pan and flip that pancake. Like, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) And so it's interesting. Yeah. In that way of him just being like alright, I've got this impressionist. He's gonna be great. And then he's like, mm, I made a very poor choice. Like, this is not the same thing that I need at all. I love them. Um, again, to go back to the documentary, I love how they said he's an impressionist. And John Huston's like, oh, that's great. I love art. He's like, no, 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 no. He, he, <laughs> he like, mimics people. And John Huston, ever the cowboy, is just like, well, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just get the real guy? <laughs> <clears throat> John Houston, the only man who could say that Ernest Hemingway's left hook was overrated <laughs> and, like, really sell that just because his face looks the way it does. That,
2: that Also, that it being on the same day that Hemingway committed suicide, Yeah, so the, that, the party takes place.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah,
0: that, uh, I didn't yeah. know
1: that until... until, like, I, uh... I read a couple of the reviews. In essay- yeah, I
0: don't know where people were getting that information from, but they said it. So it must be true that like the party takes place on July 2nd and it's like, Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. And, uh, Wells had, uh, an interest in Hemingway. They kind of were these sort of contemporary American geniuses that were sort of compared to each other. Um, uh, and I think even uh, Wells and Coderre actually were working on something a little more separate that was supposed to be based on Hemingway in the '70s as well. So I think that might have just been an artist who was on Orson's Wells's mind for a bit. Yeah,
2: I, I feel like one other interesting thing uh, too that I, I guess I'd like to speak about a little bit is you know the we talked a little bit about how this being kind of a uh you know picking at at new hollywood and uh, the machismo that was associated with these older generations and stuff but i do think it's fascinating the kind of thread of like fear of castration that almost goes through this movie <laughs> in the sense of in both the film within the film, as well as the documentary aspects, like, uh, like to these men, at least, you know, I, John Houston and Bogdanovich, like literally the scariest thing is, you know, someone ever accusing you of being gay or something. So it is really fascinating to me that, um, sorry, the like film within a film, like the arguably arguable centerpiece that we already spoke about is like uh Kodar, you know, uh you know, pretending to castrate him in a uh kind of uh you know, magical realist way. I or expression it I I don't quite know how I'd describe that, but regardless, I, I did just find that fascinating. I, and I I I think I maybe almost wanted even a little more of it, I, I mean, I guess you could also speak to the uh, "Did I disappoint you, Daddy?" as its its own like subversion of what we expect from these very like manly men who talk about work and you know like the the project that they're doing and always pointing forward. So it it is. I, I did find all of that fascinating, and especially in relation to what Caden just mentioned about Zara potentially, you know, being. the the ghost of the past, kind of constantly hanging over the party.
1: Yeah, the sort of fear of impotence, I think, might be part of the text going on there um, because you feel like, because obviously in that scene, uh, Hannaford's goading uh, Coderre's character to do it, and there's some type of disc. There's some type of uh, fractured relationship going on with Hannaford and his lead actor, where that goading might have also been him trying to push the lead actor out of the project. Like, it was by design that he wanted to basically spook this lead actor who he assumes to possibly be gay. To leave the project, but also, again, the sort of, sort of feeling that this director is kind of refashioning himself as this art filmmaker who wants to feature a lot of TNA in his work and is trying to be this modern, uh, person with the times and again, that sort of fear that it's all sort of past him, that he's kind of distilled as just this living legend. I definitely think the whole sort of frustrations of Hannaford are surrounded sort of by the sort of fear of failure in the work and also the sort of fear Mm -hmm. of age, which then also can be aligned with his sort of fear about uh, losing sort of sexual drive. Like, I've, I've been seeing some readings that do posit, like, is Hannaford might possibly be read as gay or not or something like that. I haven't quite read it as such. I do think, though, that there is this kind of Uh, sort of machismo going on where he wants to sort of he does sort of want to um, be the dominant presence that he was once in his past and Mm -hmm. I think that does sort of that is part of the text and it does involve him wanting to dominate the lead actor even if that means basically just making it a living hell for the actor and also questioning a lot about who that actor is
0: and that's apparently like a lot of what woodwells himself would do just like hammering people and then you know someone on the documentary says like the second you're ready to walk away he walks up to you and says like you're doing great work i love this you're like everything i need and then you're just like oh okay well i'll stick around um and it's 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 hard in this movie to know like when you're being given an insight by someone who knows more than you expect them to, or when someone is just projecting. So like you've got that Good example, like, you know, you've got the, the imbecile in the car. Who's like, um, you know, is the camera like reflecting reality or is reality reflecting the camera or is the camera phallus? <laughs> and then you have the woman who's like, you know, you you had a leading man and you seduced his wife because you want to sleep with the leading man, but you won't allow yourself to, so you just slept with the wife. And I'm like, is that one of those things where it's like, is that is that like a critique of the way that people will try to read into someone what they want despite all the evidence to the contrary just because it fits with the narrative they're trying to create? Or is that person actually like making an insightful kind of statement about like his repressed homosexuality because like he doesn't really read to me in that way and i thought you know he just slept with a guy's wife he's just a fucking asshole because he's an asshole like in the movie he is just a huge dick all the time and it's almost like it's almost like is this person supposed to be um attempting to academically emasculate him and like undermine his masculinity or is she unwilling to see that he could just be a horrible human being or is she like tapping into some unspoken truth about him and there's a lot of things like that and then and then he and then he dies um and so i don't know it's it's weird that the i don't know that the movie ever comes down in any particular way on that. It's, it's kind of like a character study that, you know, isn't meant to come to any real final understanding, but, um, but, but is so intercut with all this other stuff that like, it forgets to like really investigate the character. It, It more or less is like a character study of Hollywood at this time. But like, you know, I never felt about these people as though they were people. If that makes sense. And so that, that kind of kept me at arm's length. And then, you know, again, just like just the, the well, the well trodden ground of this particular idea and concept, you know, it might've been an eviscerating, like crazy insightful film had it been completed when it was shot. But like, as it stands now, it's just, it's just like one man's particular opinion about that idea. And you know, coming from where he is, it makes sense. But I guess the problem for me is like Citizen Kane, Touch of Evil, like these are movies that are great, whether you know about Wells or not. And this movie seems like you've gotta know what the hell was going on. And you have to know who Wells is and where he was at this period in his life, and know the struggle that went into even just film some of this movie in order for it to to reach any kind of level of interest like if i just plopped my mom down and made her watch this i don't know that she would get anything out of it and
2: like yeah i would have an extremely difficult time recommending this to anyone who hadn't seen orson wales or was aware of you know even part of his story
0: (laughs) yeah like you know you don't gotta you don't have to have seen like you don't have to have seen Shame and Twelve Years a Slave and and read like a biography of Steve McQueen to enjoy Widows, but like this movie requires a lot of of metatextual knowledge in order for it to like really pluck any strings in you. I feel, and that's that can be fine. Like that level of of reward, I guess, for your film knowledge is is good. But I just like at the end of the day when I'm talking about movies, like I will often say like. Movie's dumb as a fucking bag of rocks that flunked out of high school, but like still a good flick because it's fun. And this movie is like, I don't know, man, it's got some crazy shit in it. And like, it's cool in a way, but like I, at the end, I don't think I'll ever need to see it again. And I don't even know who I would tell to see it if I were to recommend it to someone. <laughs> like if, if someone pointed a gun at me and said, recommend this movie to someone you think will like it. I would just be like, oh, fuck, man. I don't know. I'm pretty sure they've already watched it. Like <laughs> Anyone who was interested in this saw it the day it hit Netflix or like the next day if they had to work the first day, you know, but like, I don't think that there's anyone out there who is the audience for this movie who I would like surprise by telling them they should see it.
2: Yeah, I think I, I think you are on to something there. I, you know, I, I mean, I guess you could compare that to some late period work, you know, like you know there's uh, there's any number of film you know like de palma for instance mm-hmm. like you could talk about uh a more modern de palma and none of those would i recommend to someone who had never seen like you know i might say uh, you know go see carlito's way or i'm not gonna say scarface. <laughs> say, it, <laughs> you know, say scarface untouchables before you see you know femme fatale or something you, you know like I, I guess that's a relatively odd comparison. but What's nonetheless, crazy is I, that I,
0: think I would literally tell anyone that they should go and see Passion. Okay. <laughs> oh, Passion. <laughs> Look, Passion's a fun, dumb fucking movie. I I, 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 I feel like that was one of the first things that we ever reviewed on this podcast. And like... I was. I think I shocked the world by being so into it. I'm like, this movie's goddamn nuts. And I don't care if you know who Brian De Palma is or not. You're going to watch this movie and you're going to be like, they do not make them like this anymore. (laughs) How did you like Passion but didn't like Elle that much? Or am I making this up? You're making that up. I still haven't seen Elle.
3: Oh, damn it.
0: (laughs) Good flick. (laughs) I have heard I just need to get around to watching it. However, I just looked up Passion And it is 99 cents on Amazon Prime, so I think I know what I'm doing tonight.
2: (laughs) Brian, you're... uh, okay.
0: (laughs) That's only if I don't see Peter Bogdanovich's 2014 comedy, She's Funny That Way.
2: Oh, I didn't... yeah, that one's rough.
0: (laughs) Which stars Owen Wilson, Imogen Poots, Catherine Hahn, Will Forte, Reese Iffens, and Jennifer Aniston.
1: You can say Imogen Poots's Brooklyn accent is its own character <laughs> i um Kate, did, I, did you see that one i yes, and <laughs> I struggled with it and I also would state that I like a lot of Bogdanovich, that is not fa- fashionable uh not in general but just like certain movies that the just cats, like now no. <laughs> dig that one uh like a like um Uh, like some of the stuff that is sort of lost uh, to film history. But yeah, this one I kind of struggled with. um, And I kind of did take some pleasure in the surprise cameo at the end of it. (laughs) But there was really not much there for me, unfortunately.
0: I love how they had in, in the documentary about the other side of the wind, they had to like... They had to, like, address what happened to Peter Bogdanovich. They were just like, yeah, he went through some personal trouble and his movies stopped being that great. Um, I just, like, this movie looks like, I don't know, like, like, how do you know or some shit like that, you know? It's just, like, a bunch of airbrushed faces over a Manhattan skyline and then a title that is barely a title. She's funny that way. Which one? How do you know it's good, though? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I kind of do have some love for that. This one, just no, it, it kind of, it kind of Michael, sort of, wait, it kind just... of, it kind of, it kind of, it kind, it kind of had me out, uh, out for it by the first by the first moments of this sort of long-winded dialogue of uh, Poots, who again, the Brooklyn accent is incredible,
0: <laughs> and I was just, just like, you might be the first two people who have ever said a kind <laughs> word about how do you know. Hey. I'll say kind words about Spanglish as well. <laughs> I have I, I could get what, some kind words out of it. What's going Spanglish. on here?
4: What what are we, we talking somehow
0: about started here? talking about James L. Brooks, <laughs> which is not what I was expecting to happen. <laughs> I went and saw Spanglish with a first generation um immigrant from Mexico <laughs> and she actually oh. really loved it. Like she found a lot of that movie to be really relevant to her, and she like said that it made her think more about like the sacrifices of her mother. It so, has terms. that's weird.
1: Yeah. Um, it's a g- it's a good <laughs> <I> fine movie.
0: <laughs> I feel like this is the signal that we've come to the end of our discussion. Now that we're <laughs> trying to come up with good things to say about Spanglish, does anyone have any final wrap up thoughts about The Other Side of the Wind? A Deeply fascinating movie, worthy of discussion, but maybe not worthy of watching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, worthy of watching though. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's kind <laughs> of where I'm falling.
1: Yeah, I definitely uh, want to watch it again, um, and uh, I, I definitely love the fact that I saw it big, and I wish other people could have seen it the way i was able to see it but unfortunately with the netflix model that's not uh readily available that's Uh, not where their bread
0: is buttered
4: well that's that's okay uh they can just rent out that uh drive-in movie theater and just project it off their phone (laughs) Guys, they are showing movies
2: in theaters, like three big ones this this month: Roma, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and uh, uh,
1: I can't remember the third one. Outlook, but yeah. I no. mean, yes, in like select cities, but like obviously, not this is obviously was never meant to be played and was never going to play at multiplexes. This is never going you know, to.
3: But I just post wish Avengers it was it,
1: it I just generally wish it could be seen the way I was able to see it. Um, but yeah, I mm-hmm. definitely, as a Wells fan, uh, I definitely stand this movie. Um, and, but I do admit it is definitely a very dense, very meta experience, but I had a lot of fun with it. Um, and, uh, I definitely get not other people feel that way, but again, <laughs>
4: Did you rewatch it?
1: Yes, I've I've been rewatching it. Um, oh, okay, because I I had those two pieces um, to do, so I was able to just sort of look back at it and all that. But I definitely do want to see it again with a little more distance now, and not under the sort of festival fever I was watching it under. But uh, I definitely. Uh, did feel like I was watching a lot of very inspired and surprising filmmaking uh, and I thought it was pretty awesome to sort of see that I was able to see this filmmaker in very different keys of satire and and uh, documentary like filmmaking. And um it's definitely worth checking out if just for the sort of aesthetic of it. And again I'm just gonna shout out Gary Graver, who again did a lot of crazy work in doing both the film within the film and uh the documentary like uh footage that the whole party is set to.
0: And who shot a shit ton of pornography. Yep. And almost died in the making of this movie. <laughs> That's what happens. You work with Wells, you're probably going to die.
2: Kaden, I'm curious, and I don't want to dredge up our conversation from the first half of yeah. this podcast, but you know, if if they, uh, you know, um, yeah, mentioned that they were going to do similar things with, uh, you know, the Dreamers or Don Quixote. Uh, or uh, or The Deep, or, or Merchant of Venice, do you think that would still be something that you'd be interested in, or do you think that there is something very specific and special about this particular film, as far as restoration goes?
1: I mean, this definitely has a vast film quality to it. Um, it's kind of interesting. Like I've talked uh, with uh, some critics, like Keith Yulick, about the whole feeling that some... Films by certain directors do feel final, like a sort of last testament.
3: Mm-hmm. I got that
1: feeling uh, with, say, uh, later, uh, Alan René. Um Yeah. But this one definitely does sort of have that kind of feel of a last film. But that said, like, I would be curious to see if if... I don't necessarily have to have a whole entire feature length film built upon it. Like, uh, like how that, 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 unfinished Clouseau, Inferno, sort of came out. That was, like, no one considered it finished, but it was this kind of fascinating sort of fragment of, a fragment that had a lot of beautiful images. Like, I'm, if it's, if one of those works, uh, did come out and was sort of in that vein, like, I wouldn't have a problem with that. Um, Mm. Although, like, again, to go back to sort of Brian's points, like, maybe some things are best left, like, never shown, but, or never, or never uh, brought to the public's eye, but perhaps um, Coder, who, again, has some of the, has the rights to some of the reels, maybe... If, if this was based on her collaboration with it that she would probably be best to sort of deal with that aspect but again this did have sort of a kind of testament sort of feeling to it of a final feature rank film at least but again I can't say I wouldn't be curious if there was more out there
0: hmm. let's finish the deep <laughs> <laughs> Koda seems to be in that one as well. Yeah, apparently. <sighs> All right, well, that is it for today, ladies and gentlemen at home. Thank you for joining us and listening to us. Hopefully this has been an edifying and insightful conversation for you. If you've listened to this entire episode and still aren't sure whether or not to see this movie, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> and, I don't yeah. know if we spoiled it. <laughs> <clears throat> i mean
1: there's no plot i'm not sure yeah, how would
0: you? <laughs> is it a spoiler that he dies no they literally bring it up in the first two minutes of the movie um this is a spoiler that he shoots a bunch of mannequins sure it is um anyway that's that it cool, we're that? done <laughs> and um let's uh remind everyone to go to patreon.com slash show and give us your money Indeed, you can also go to MUBI.com slash filmstage and get a 30 day free trial of Movie, which is the online streaming cinema where you can watch some of the great independent foreign art house movies. Again, that is MUBI.com slash filmstage. But that is it for today. Let us now uh, all take a moment and tell the fine people at home where it can be found on the internet uh, if they want to hear more of our ramblings and musings on movies. Caden, let's start with you.
1: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Caden uh, M. Gardner. And um, you can also find my general website, uh, Daffy Duck and Hollywood.wordpress.com.
0: All right, Bill Graham.
4: Uh, you can find me deleting all my unfinished works of art on Twitter at cable BFG, And you can find me on uh, the Slack channel.
0: Yeah, Bill, you, it would be terrible if someone, like, finished the last set that you never got a chance to finish. <laughs> you know? Those are your reps, <laughs> goddammit. Michael Michael Snydell. You can find me on
2: uh, Twitter at, at Snydell, where I'm sure I will be dreading uh, seeing the next Steve McQueen movie uh, next week. Oh, boy. Uh, widows, uh, baby. Widows next week,
0: guys. <laughs> Finally. Um,
2: and, One for Brian. Um, uh, letterboxed just my name
0: yeah Um, and of course you can find me at my personal site uh, dearfilm.net brianjrowan.com and you can follow me on twitter at brianjrowan instagram at brianjrowan look up Schmidt Spirits if you want to see the distillery that I'm helping to make and um how's that going? I guess that's it I think I'm done um it's going fine Uh, we set up the still the (laughs) other day just like one day I'll write a book about how, it, it fucking takes a how fucking impossible it is to start a small business in this country. <laughs> um, uh-huh. I understand that. Yeah, it's like, hey, um, we'd like to start a distillery. That's great. Have you literally done everything that you need to do to start that business? Like, up to That's and including renting the space and buying all the equipment. And only after you do that will we deign to look at you and decide if you're allowed to. Yes. It's yeah. the fucking insanest thing ever because, like, you I, have I, to fully I, commit financially to this endeavor before they will even tell you if you are legally allowed to do it. Anyway, anyway, yeah. anyway, let's it's move fun. on. Uh, next week, we're talking about widows. So come back for that. Uh, It'll be great. <laughs> I will uh, be effusively happy. Michael will probably be depressed as fuck. And Bill will fall somewhere in the middle, hopefully. It's going to be a great time. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us, and tune in next time. The sun
3: sweet berries of the earth Come roll in all oh the riches my. all around you And for once, never Jeez, wonder what there were
0: What is this to on the nose?
3: Rainstorm and the river are my brothers <laughs> The heron and the otter are my friends
0: Clearly I just did a YouTube search for any song with a wind in the
3: title <laughs>